You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. In in recent years, maybe what we mean to say is among younger generations, there seems to have been a cultural shift that has happened in Christianity, a cultural shift towards loving others, towards caring for the oppressed and the hurting, towards knowing and building relationships with those who don't yet know Christ. And and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Authentic Christianity has suffered for many years being overtaken by legalists hoarding their resources and isolating themselves inside oversized church buildings. And somewhere along that line, in some recent generations, perhaps, people have remembered a couple of verses they remembered that Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he defined what a neighbor is. And the neighbor that he defined it to be is, well, anyone, and perhaps most specifically those who you dislike, those who you're scared of, those who you normally try to avoid. And they remembered That spectacular verse in James 1, which begins by saying religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And they rightly expounded out on on that verse to understand it, to not just say care for widows and, and, and orphans, but to all people who are oppressed. The church, Christians, ought to be a place where those who the world has despised and forsaken can find love and care. And the good news is that when we care for hurting people, the world actually likes us more. Because the world loves people who love people. Right? We, we actually have seen this a few times in our study in 1 Peter already. Peter is telling us that when we do good, we actually silence our mockers. So look at this in 1 Peter 2.12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's the trajectory of that verse. Christians conduct themselves honorably. They do good deeds, and people still speak against them. But... When they see those good deeds, they're not only silenced, but they actually glorify God. Or or look at 2.15, it says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right? So Christian, you do good. They speak against you with ignorance and foolishness, but by your good deeds, they are silenced. They can't talk bad about people helping people. Right? Or one more, 1 Peter 3, 16. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Christian, you do good things. You have good behavior, a good conscience, but you'll still be slandered and reviled. 
but by your good behavior, those who revile you are actually shamed and silence. And, and that shift that has happened in Christian culture, it seems to have also happened in, in broader culture as well, so much so that it's really hard to mock a person who's helping people. And so you may have thought, hey, we found our ticket. Here it is, Christians. We figured it out finally. Christians just need to focus their attention on loving others, and then the world won't have any problems with us. But here's what I can tell you. If you think that you have figured out how to follow Jesus and the world not have any issues with you, you have misunderstood what it means to follow Jesus. And the specific issue that we face here is, well, the rest of Scripture. The problem is that before Jesus told them the second greatest commandment was to love their neighbors as themselves, he told them that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? The, the issue is that the rest of that verse, that spectacular verse in James, which says religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The rest of the verse says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And the world does not particularly like it when we follow the second portion of that verse. It finds it objectionable that we find sinful living objectionable. It is opposed to our belief that there is only one God and every part of our lives should be given over in utter submission, in love and service to him. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God doesn't just care about the oppressed. It also separates itself from the sinful practices of the world. And, and that's the transition that we're going to see here in 1 Peter as well. Previously, he has been talking about a criticism that will be silenced by our goodness. But in our passage today, the world's criticism is not of our goodness, but of our godliness. And there is no promise of it being silenced, only that one day it will be judged. And so let's go ahead and turn to our passage this morning. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 1119. Um, and we do want to make sure you know these Bibles are here for you. You're welcome to take one if you don't have a copy of God's Word or you want another copy of God's Word. They're here for you. We'd love to give you one. So listen to 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse one, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, so if I were to sum up what Peter seems to be saying here, it's simply this. It's enough already. It's enough. It's, it's enough trying to be your own God. It's enough of trying to have your own way. It's enough sinning. It's enough of the unsatisfying pleasures of this world. It's just enough already. And, and he kind of makes it clear there in verse three. He says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, right? He says, you've lived that way long enough. It's enough already. It's time to change. It's time to live differently. Another way to put it is simply this. We need to hit rock bottom. Now, have you ever thought about that phrase? People use that phrase talking about their lives. Oh, and then I hit rock bottom. I hit rock bottom and I decided that I needed to change, right? But have you ever heard someone say that and you thought to yourself, I don't really sound like rock bottom to me. I feel like you probably could have gone a little bit deeper in if you tried, right? Maybe you even think if you think like, I've gone further than that. That's not rock bottom, right? So what is rock bottom? Rock bottom is simply the place you get when you turn around. Wherever you turn around, that's your rock bottom. Rock bottoms where you finally say enough already. I want to change. And Peter is telling us that we need to have a rock bottom moment. Enough already with living the way the Gentiles do. It's time to get serious. It's time to change. Our passage gives us four reasons that it's enough already. First, it says it's enough already because Christ has suffered and set you free. Look at verses one and two again. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now we're told about that suffering last last time we were together, last week in chapter three, verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the, is the gospel message that Christ, the eternal son of God, took on flesh, lived among us, dealt with all the suffering of this world, the the brokenness, the temptation, and all of it, but without sin. And then he willingly went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died for our sins so that he could bring us to God so that we could have a relationship with God. And in his death, we have been set free from sin. And and that's why when it comes to sin, it's enough already. Christ has suffered. He's given us new life and and freedom from sin. Paul, in in Romans 6, he talks about the, the suffering and the death of Christ. He says that those who have trusted in him have been united with him in his death. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, so let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. 
do not present your members as sin, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because Christ has suffered, it's enough. We've been set free from sin. So why do we keep walking in it? And maybe a better question would be, how do I stop walking in it? Well, our passage says to arm yourself with the thinking of Christ. Counselor J. Adams says that the Christian has all he needs to defeat habitual sinful desire, but he can only win the battle if he goes forth to war against those desires with the thought in his mind that he has come to a parting of the ways with sin. And he has to arm himself with that thought. I would add to that that we arm ourselves with thoughts of heaven, with, with thoughts of the presence of God, thoughts of the hope that, that lies ahead of us. That's the thinking of Christ, right? To use the title of this whole series, right? We need our obedience to be fueled by hope, right? That's what Colossians 3 means when it, when it says, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on earth, right? That's Colossians 3, 2. But then here's what verse 5 says is the outflow of that type of thinking. It says, so then you will put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, arm yourself. Get ready for battle with heaven-bound thinking, the thinking of Christ and put sin away because it's just enough already. Christ has suffered, he set you free, but it is also enough already because you have sinned plenty. That's what verse three says. It says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Listen to me. Whatever amount of sin you've done in your life, it's enough. It's enough. Pastor John Piper says it this way. He says, arm yourselves with this thought. Any amount of past sinning is enough. If you sinned a little before you were converted, it's enough. If you send a lot for a lot of years before your conversion, it's enough. You can never sin so little that you need to say, I need a little more sin. <laughs> how many people, how many people say, I know that I need to get right with God. I know that I need to make a, a break with sin, but just a little more time. Just give me a little more time. I'll do it later. I'll do it when I'm older. I'll do it when the sin isn't fun anymore. That's when I'll do it. Make a break with sin. Choose the will of God, even if you must suffer for it. Warren Wearsby says, life's too short to waste it on godless living. Here's the point. All the time that you have spent 
all the time prior to your conversion that you have spent sinning, it's enough, right? That's what he's talking about in verse two. He says, live the rest of your time now, the rest of your time, not for human passions, but for the will of God. And look at how he discusses sin. He talks about sensuality, right? That's the things that, that, that tickle your senses, make you feel some sort of way, right? How much of our lives are just trying to, to feel some sort of way, just trying to tickle our senses. But then he says, it's not just sensuality, it's also your passions. It's the things that you love. And we spend our lives trying to feel some sort of way and going after the things that we love. And then he, and then he turns to our addictions. He says drunkenness here, but we could see in that a world of addictions that we have. But then he moves from the individual to the corporate orgies and drinking parties. He says the world, the way of the world, it doesn't just do these despicable things, but it bow, it, it boldly and proudly does them together. All of it. And at the end of the day, it's all just lawless idolatry. At the end of the day, it's simply worship of ourselves and not God. He doesn't seem to be, and this is, should be clear, he doesn't seem to be judging us for our past. But it's enough already. You've sinned plenty. It's sufficient. I have sinned to the full. I don't need any more. It's enough. But he says to leave it behind will result in mocking, suffering, persecution, Especially if you consider the fact that I used to do all those things with other people and, and now I'm telling those same people, hey, I don't do that anymore. And some of them, or some of us, I should say, have been trying to ride that fine line of holding to a commitment to Christ, but also continuing to do everything the way that we've always done it. Because we don't want to ostracize our friends, right? I, I know the tension. I, I understand it, but it's enough already. It doesn't mean that you can't be with your friends. It doesn't mean that you can't hang out with them. But if the only time that they want to hang out with you is at an orgy or a drinking party, then they don't really want to spend time with you. And Peter tells you exactly what will happen. Look at verse four. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They will be surprised and they will malign you. That word malign, it means more than just make fun of. It's actually the word for blasphemy. It means to slander and abuse. It's the word that Paul uses of himself when he talks about how he used to persecute the church. It's an aggressive word. They won't just laugh at you or, or, or call you bad names. They'll start telling other people how judgmental you are, how unloving you are, how you went off, got religion, became a goody two-shoes, and now you don't ever want to see anybody anymore. Right, commentator Edmund Clowney says that drawing the line in a new life will antagonize former friends. And, and that's the issue. 
But try as you may, when you say yes to Jesus and no to the party life, your friends will feel like you're attacking them. So what do you do? Well, I think that many of us just keep doing what we always did. And and we deceive ourselves into thinking that it's okay because, well, Christians need to be in those sorts of places, right? And we let Satan and our friends trick us into thinking that it's a better testimony for Christ to keep going to the drinking parties when the reality is that when we keep participating in the same flood of debauchery, all we are saying is that Jesus didn't really change anything at all. And Peter says it's enough already. You can love your friends and be unstained by the world. Tell them that you'd love to get coffee, to hang out and watch a movie. Let's go out to eat. But as for the orgies and the drinking parties, it's enough already. It's enough already because Christ suffered and set you free because you've sinned enough already and because judgment is coming. Real judgment is coming. Not just the judgmentalism of your friends, but the judgment of God. In in fact, that's how we endure the judgment we encounter on earth. Because there's another judgment coming. Those who malign you will give account before God. And that's not something we lord over them. It's not something we wish upon them. It's not something we want for them. Rather because we know that it's coming. We need to live our lives as lives of witness before them. We want to live lives that declare that Jesus really did something. He really changed something in you, that he really can save you, that he really can set you free. He really can give you an abundant life, even in the midst of suffering. He really can do it. The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He is ready, which is to say, that there is nothing standing in the way of God's judgment aside from his patient mercy. On that day, Jesus says that we will give an account for every careless word that we have spoken. And here's the thing. Our hope and our prayer should not be that the friends of our former life will still like us and feel comfortable around us, but that they would see the grace of God in us and come to salvation like us. Judgment is coming. It is ready. And so we must be bold with the gospel. We serve a God who loves to save sinners. In fact, it's the only people he saves. Peter says that these people malign us. And Paul says, I used to malign you. But then I had an encounter with the risen Lord. And the only thing delaying the judgment of God is his mercy. So look at what Peter says in his second letter. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, 9 and 10, he says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see that? He says, judgment is coming. The, the works will be exposed and people will give an account. And what is it that keeps it from happening? God is patient. God is patient. And he is hoping and, and wishing that even more, he's hoping and wishing that all would reach repentance. But when it comes to sin, that's, it's enough already. Judgment is coming and we join God in his desire to see people come to repentance. And so we need to be clear that Jesus has done something in our lives. Judgment is coming, but salvation has come already. Salvation has already come in Christ. That's verse six. Verse six tells us that the gospel of salvation was preached even to those who are now dead. Salvation has come and it's for any who would entrust their life to Christ. His, his example in, in all of those who have already died is an example of trusting in Jesus. He says, here's what happened. The gospel was preached to them and they believed it. And then they were persecuted for it, but now they're living in the reality of it because they are in the presence of God. He says they have suffered death in the flesh, but they are experiencing life in the spirit. It's enough already because salvation has come. And, and the worst thing that the world can do is, is kill you, but they can never take your life because your life as a follower of Jesus is hidden with Christ in God. Ephesians 2, 6 says that you are already seated with him in the heavenly places, already. Salvation has come, so sin no longer has a place in our life. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's enough already. Christ has suffered and set you free. He's given you all that you need to walk in a life of righteousness. So arm yourself with that way of thinking. And here's the thing. Love your neighbor. Love them. Love the people that you would otherwise hate. Love the people that you're scared of. Love the people that the, that the world hates. Care for the, the widows and, and the orphans, the hurting and the oppressed. But keep yourself unstained from the world. It's enough already. Sin has no place in the people of God. As, as the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so may our God help us to be so vigilant against sin in our own lives because it's, it's enough. That's enough already. Let's pray. God, we confess that we often have given up 
our, our personal holiness in hopes of just making others feel more comfortable. But the reality is, as we welcome them in, we cast you out. So Lord, we ask that you would forgive us. We know that we need to love others, but there is no greater love than to demonstrate to them the love that we have for you and the love that you have for them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us, help us to be killing sin. And we pray that you would help us to fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus, that we would run after him. Because we know that he, he managed to both love his neighbor and to hate sin. And we want to be like him. And we pray in his name. Amen.